Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Dr. Paul Cruz. Dr. Cruz, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Dr. Cruz is board certified in both general pediatrics and pediatric endocrinology and metabolism, and he is the associate professor of pediatrics at Washington University of St. Louis in both their department of cell biology and physiology and their department of endocrinology and diabetes. Dr. Cruz's research interests, correct me if I mispronounce any of these, Dr. Cruz, include diabetes mellitus, intermediary carbohydrate metabolism, glucose transporter structure, and function and mechanism of insulin action. Did I get all that right? Yes, you did. Okay. He has numerous publications, but the one we're talking about today is a mainstream book that just came out, which he contributed to, called Sexual Identity, the Harmony of Philosophy, Science, and Revelation. So, Dr. Hughes, can you tell us a little bit about that book? Certainly, we're, we're very excited about uh, this book that that has recently been published. Actually, came about uh, through uh, an interdisciplinary discussion that went on over a year, almost two years. It was initiated by a Thomistic philosopher at our seminary here in St. Louis, Dr. Finley, where we brought together people uh, with varying areas of expertise. You know, philosophy, theology, medicine, science. Uh, we had a gynecologist, a geneticist, myself as an endocrinologist. And really set out to explore this question, this fundamental question of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Not that you're here representing Washington University in any official capacity, but that you have a lot of individual experience researching these topics. Yeah. And through that process, uh, we all grew tremendously in our understanding and in the depth of that understanding. And we felt that after we concluded that study, that it was necessary to put this forward in a book format to share this with others. And so it's really a unique contribution to the discussion that is currently going on in in mainstream culture and and really addresses not only the beauty of the human person as male and female, but uh, some of the many errors that have been introduced uh, through failure to appreciate uh, that interconnectedness uh, between the uh, the male and and female uh, members of of the human uh, species. This is sort of continuing a discussion that we've uh, had with Abigail Favale on previous episodes, where we talk kind of more broadly about some of the issues surrounding gender theory. If you're interested in sort of a more broad approach, we definitely recommend checking out episodes 65 and 66 from last year, and this year, episode 93, all of which uh, included our interviews with Abigail Favale. Um, So I definitely recommend checking that out if you haven't already. But now turning to more specific focus. So Dr. Cruz, when you were having those conversations kind of across disciplines, were there any big takeaways that you sort of gained as specializing in as, as an endocrinologist, but hearing the perspective of other people? Was there anything you learned from outside your discipline? One of the the main fruits of, of that conversation uh, was really a, a deepening uh, of the understanding of, of the beauty of the human person uh, and how what we can understand from a biological perspective uh, fits in very integrally with what we can understand uh, at a psychological level, uh, at a theological level, and, and even uh, from the area of philosophy of, of of how we understand the human person. So I think it it led to a deepening and enrichment 
of that. And, and it forced us actually to, to address you know, some very difficult uh, questions, uh, you know, when there are, are differences in the development of, of the human person uh, as male or female, uh, when we encounter errors uh, in understanding how the, the society really approaches and, and, and deals with this question. And, you know, beginning with, with some of the uh, attempts to dissociate uh, both uh, the, the unitive and the, the procreative uh, aspects of, of sexuality, and, and really how that actually has led us to where we are right now. So I think that for each of us, in our own disciplines, uh, we're able to, to deepen our understanding and, and really walk away with a, a more complete, and I would say more beautiful understanding of, of who the human person is. And then in your specific section of the book, you worked with uh, Dr. Kara Buskmiller, is that right? That's correct. I had the privilege of being able to uh, work with uh, Dr. Buskmiller, who is a, a gynecologist, and actually she's also a consecrated virgin and a very unique perspective uh, that she was able to bring to that discussion. And, and you know, we worked uh, together uh, in uh, contributing uh, to our particular chapter on biology, because I think it was important uh, to not just talk about, you know, again, my specialty is, is, is in the area of hormones uh, and uh, my experience. Of, of working with children with disorders of sexual development. And Dr. Brustmiller's uh, perspective is more, you know, dealing with issues related to fertility uh, and infertility. And I think that we complemented each other very well um, in that. Um, it, it really, I think, enriched uh, the entire um, process of, of our discussion. And hopefully uh, the readers of, of the book uh, will agree. And it was a really interesting section. So your particular part of the book is chapter two, and it covers a kind of biological understanding of man and woman. And it seemed to run the whole gamut of different potential biological accounts for man and woman. And you sort of run through different sort of ways of looking at this issue. And it seemed like that now that you now that you talk about her specialty, it makes sense how you focus on different areas. What are those areas, maybe if somebody's unfamiliar with these discussions around the sexes, what are some of the areas people will point to as a potential explanation of what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman? Yeah, I think that's a that's a central question. And, and from a biological perspective, you know, we begin with the premise, the understanding uh, that sex uh, exists for the purpose of, of reproduction. And that's uh, not exclusive uh, to humans. It's actually across the entire animal kingdom and recognizing not only in the, the birth of, of new human life, but also the rearing of the children that come from that reproductive act. So we, we step uh, through the, uh, the understanding beginning uh, where we we all begin uh, by looking at other people. And, and so we, we discuss some of the superficial differences in, in the external appearance of males versus females and, and point out you know, how readily we can recognize males or females uh, based upon those characteristics, uh, for example, facial hair and, and presence of breast. But we needed to go much deeper than that because there's so much more uh, to who the human person is as male and female than that just that superficial level. And so the next level that we, we discuss is uh, that of of the uh, reproductive organs and and the components of the reproductive uh, system, and in that uh, go into great detail to to highlight the uniqueness uh, of the reproductive system from all of the other systems that we have in the human body. Uh, it is the only system that we have that is incomplete within a single individual, uh, that uh, a male or a female only has a half of the reproductive system as opposed to a complete respiratory and circulatory system. So yeah, no, nobody thinks about it that way. That's, that's funny. 
Yeah. So, so I think that, and even my medical students that I, you know, quiz them on this and, and I think it, until you think about it, it it's easy to be missed. So there's, there's a certain complementarity to that. Um, but there's also, um, you know, many aspects of, of the human person, you know, that are shared between males and females where, where the males and, and the females uh, have a unique giftedness uh, uh, toward achieving uh, different uh, components of that process, whether it's the reproductive process itself, for the rearing of children um, that that come uh, from that uh, sexual encounter, we we uh, then transition from that organ level uh, to the genetic uh, discussion, and this is where many people have very firmly held beliefs about what it means to be male and female based mm-hmm. on X and Y chromosomes. And I think while that's a good starting point, it really fails um, to uh, recognize that the chromosomes themselves are not what determines sex. It's actually the genetic information that's present on those chromosomes. And and we walk through the whole process of of human sexual differentiation. So all human beings uh, begin life in a state uh, where they developmentally can differentiate into either the male or or female phenotype or or appearance. And uh, it's important to recognize uh, that beautiful and intricate signaling process that occurs uh, to allow that to happen. And then associated with that, uh, then we, we delve into some of the molecular uh, differences and uh, the nature of the human person as far as how this inf- genetic information translates into the production of organs that make a different hormones, estrogen and, and uh, testosterone, and uh, how that genetic differences uh, lead to the differential expression of uh, messages um, or expression of genes. Uh, and they have profound impacts in many aspects of physiology, um, differences in muscle mass and strength, uh, longevity, uh, ability to fight infection, um, which are very, very important. And we, and we consider this in the context of that fundamental purpose of being male and female and how that those differences that occur between males and females actually contribute to the success in those respective roles as male and female. You know, after after considering all of that, uh, then we delve into some of the aspects that where this does not occur as it, as it should. You know, I think when some people hear about the very detailed and extensive accounts of how sex develops in a person, and they sort of think they, you know, they hear about chromosomes and they hear about different hormones or different gonadal development, they think like, well, that doesn't feel like who I am. That doesn't seem like it really explains me as a person. And it feels like it's just plumbing, sort of almost external to who I am. Is that how we understand the scientific account? Of, or the scientific aspect of the person? Is it just plumbing? I think if, if we consider the, the physical nature of the body and, and look at the organs, and, and as you said, um, you know, some describe it as plumbing, and we stop there, we're left uh, indeed with a very shallow uh, and uh, really inaccurate understanding of who the permit, uh, human person is. To understand that just as the uh, chromosomes are there for a purpose of uh, genetic information to direct the process. The organs themselves are there for a purpose uh, of fulfilling that role in the uh, generation and rearing of children. And so I think that it's uh, much more helpful to move beyond uh, the basic uh, structural uh, differences or the plumbing uh, aspect of sexuality to why we are created male and female. And again, you know, we're discussing in, in this chapter of the book specifically on biology, and there are, are other dimensions uh, that 
you know, tell us more about uh, the relational aspect and, and the theological understanding of, of male and female. So when we are able to move beyond the, the plumbing, as, as you said, to the purpose, uh, the telos of the male and female roles, we get a much better understanding and we're able to deal much better with uh, situations where uh, where things uh, are not working properly and and uh, where we have to really come to an understanding of how we uh, deal with uh, those individuals uh, that uh, are infertile, for example, uh, yeah. or that have uh, misshapen genitalia or absent or, or non-functioning gonads. Yeah, let's talk about that because sometimes people will say, okay, but what about inter, quote unquote intersex people who don't seem to fit neatly into a category of male or female. I think this is one that, you know, sort of the average person on the street is almost completely unfamiliar with. And when they hear a little bit about it, they they sort of shrink away from talking about the discussion because it's such an unfamiliar complication. Can you say a little bit about that that sort of idea of intersex people? Most certainly, you know, I, I think it's it's obvious uh, to uh, any parent, uh, and I think to really um, nearly everyone. The first question that one asks when a child is born, if they don't find out by ultrasound before birth, is it is it a boy or a girl? Mm-hmm. And uh, that designation is uh, made uh, by observance of the appearance of the external genitalia. In ninety nine point nine eight percent of the time, one is going to be correct in recognizing the sexual identity of that child by that visual appearance. But the reality is that there are rare conditions uh, where people are born with genital ambiguity, where the answer to that question uh, by the physician is, I don't know. But that doesn't negate the binary nature of of sexuality uh, as being male or female. So um, many times the claims are made that that sex occurs along a continuum and that this this ambiguity uh, really disproves the idea of a a binary sex. When people make those claims, they fail to recognize uh, that there are two and only two gonads, uh, testes and ovaries, that contribute to that that reproductive process. And when you have uh, these individuals that are born with that ambiguity, most of them are infertile uh, or have significantly reduced fertility. So there's something that is is missing in in that ability to participate in in reproduction. Uh, It is important to recognize what happened in the developmental process, either from a genetic mutation or from an environmental or hormonal insult during that critical stage of development that led to that ambiguity. And that's the role of the physician uh, in caring for that uh, child. But it doesn't negate that that reality of, of male and female. Uh, but it does get uh, challenging in, in many regards. So I, I always like to say that that when everything is, is formed and functioning uh, according to design as male or female, uh, recognition of sexual identity at the biological dimension uh, can be made with certainty. But anytime you have that deviation from that, while that reality does continue to exist, our ability to understand the sexual identity uh, becomes obscured. And many times to the level that uh, we are not able to know definitively, we can only make uh, tentative assignments. So, you know, again, the, you know, sex is usually not assigned at birth. It is recognized at birth. 
with the exception of uh, children that are born with these uh, disorders of sexual development, where there, I, I think in that rare circumstance, one would uh, be fair to say uh, one is trying to tentatively assign based upon what we understand uh, as to how that uh, child uh, developed. And the whole purpose of doing that is is to help the parents and, and the child later in life to be able to live out uh, their sexual identity in the most fulfilling way uh, when there uh, is something that is not fully functional. We can say that for other other disorders as well. Somebody born with absent digits or, or a limb or um, a person without vision, it doesn't change the understanding of, of what those organs are, are for, but it is important to be able to recognize that there is something that's not working and how do we help that individual to be able to live a, a most fulfilling life in the presence of, of, of that developmental difference. So it sounds like that term, you, you used a term there that sounds like it might have been more helpful than intersex. You said disorders of sexual development. Indeed, I think that is how we've always uh, looked at these individuals. The term intersex is actually within the medical community um, now is, is referred to as DSDs. It really refers to disorders of sexual development, recognizing that that, that something happened uh, to affect the normal sexual differentiation. Now, there are many that will make the claim uh, based upon the sex along the continuum uh, framework um, that these are merely differences. Um, so if you use the initials, DSD can be either disorders or differences of sexual development. I think to fully understand and appreciate uh, the significance of that ambiguity and, and its effect on fertility and, and sexual functioning, I think it is appropriate um, to recognize it as a disorder. Now, that does not take away our, our compassion for the people that experience uh, that level of suffering and to be able to enter into that suffering and be able to help them along the way. We do this in other areas as well. We, we, you know, for example, I'm an endocrinologist, and and I, you know, somebody has diabetes. We recognize diabetes as a disease. I don't call that a variation of, of glucose homeostasis. I, I call it something that that's a disorder, and we, one can still maintain that uh, compassion and and be able to help uh, alleviate suffering by still recognizing in the context of the design of the human person and in the in the area of sexuality um, how. Uh, that developmental process uh, would normally occur. That's really helpful. And it seems to sort of point out a kind of a fundamental difference in the way you're talking about this versus the way some people in public discourse will talk about this, where they will they will say, if they believe in binary sex, they will say, okay, what makes a man is this particular part. And if you have it, you're a man. And if you don't, you're not a man. And then there are people who disagree with them that accept that that's the only possible justification for that belief. And they reject it because they bring up cases like we've been discussing, which serve as evidence to the contrary. And then there's sort of an impasse because they're both talking about a part-based account of sexuality versus what you're talking about. These systems are oriented towards an act, which has to do with generating life either in another person as in the case of males, or generating life within oneself, as in the case of females. And that, that act-based kind of account of the sexes seems like it does a better job of explaining things than a part-based account. Has that been your experience? 
Indeed it is. And, and so often, you know, people fail to recognize that because they've dissociated uh, this whole purpose of, of sexuality uh, from the equation. And I think we see that in our, our current culture, um, you know, the, the contraceptive mentality that, you know, the, the way we behave has has nothing to do with, with the generation of new human life. But even, you know, beyond, you know, the plumbing or, or the, you know, the structural differences, there, there's a relational difference as well. And, and this is borne out biologically when we think about these differences that are, are between the sexes as a result of the genetic differences. And so that we like to talk about differences in strength, the differences in height and, and lean body mass and many other aspects of uh, that are different between males and females. And even in the relationship between males and females uh, as a couple, um, how they are complementary uh, to each other in carrying out that purpose. So that there's, there's a, from a biological standpoint, there's a tremendous advantage of dividing up responsibilities. We do this in other areas. We call divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. So that if if one member of the species had to both provide for uh, nutrition and for the protection of that young child, there are costs associated with that. Uh, breastfeeding itself has an energy cost. Um, there, there's uh, extra calories that are required for that. And there's only so many you know calories um, you know that can be applied in, in, in one individual. This advantage of, of increased uh, lean body mass or muscle mass has been a associated with uh, uh, changes in longevity and, and also susceptibility to infection, among others. So again, the differences um, that we're talking about between males and females go far beyond uh, just this understanding of the parts. Mm -hmm. And in the context of understanding what uh, these differences or why these differences, uh, why we have two sexes uh, rather than one, one walks away with a much deeper uh, understanding and appreciation for why we uh, have been designed in the way we have. It's funny talking about all these almost like ripple effects of these principles. You know, sometimes we think about why am I a man in terms of what am I ordered to doing, but it doesn't just explain that. It also explains further back how I came into being in the first place, not just what I'm supposed to do, but my origins. Because why am I a man also explains the man that caused me to be and the woman that caused me to be. So if I reject this account, I'm not just rejecting what, I'm, what I may be called to do in my own life down the road. It would also be a rejection of the thing that makes me me in the first place. So if I rejected it, there would be no me to reject it. And it would be like sawing off the tree branch that you're sitting on. It's a lot to think about because it sounds like it touches on so many different facets. I mean, that's the reason why you had so many contributors in this book from all sorts of disciplines, right? Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that really that that's why it was necessary to, to take people that had expertise in, in the, these different disciplines to really uh, contribute at the deepest level possible uh, to that conversation. I, I certainly am not uh, a formally trained philosopher uh, or theologian. And, uh, you know, for me to, to understand aspects of philosophy and, and theology. I think all of us have that basic understanding, but it certainly uh, makes sense uh, to draw upon a, a deeper understanding uh, from those that have uh, dedicated a, a large portion of their careers to be able uh, to dig deeper. And I think that's what we tried to accomplish, you know, from my role as a pediatric endocrinologist and physician scientist, you know, how can we use that uh, information, um, you know, that we understand in the area of science and medicine to at least uh, dig deeper and understand more completely that aspect of the human person. 
Wonderful. Well, the book, again, is Sexual Identity, The Harmony of Philosophy, Science, and Revelation. Dr. Paul Cruz, thanks so much for joining us. Again, my pleasure. Thank you. And we are back. Kara, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we are recording this on the 85th anniversary of the publication of The Hobbit and the 45th anniversary of the publication of The Silmarillion. So Kara, happy anniversary and... Tomorrow, September 22nd, Happy Hobbit Day. Oh, indeed. I almost forgot about that. I know these are very uh, significant holidays to you uh, and to your family. <laughs> Sounds like it might be for you, though. <laughs> I feel like I need to I need to just be upfront that like I was very into the Lord of the Rings movies when they came out. And then I listened to the audiobooks and decided that I was more into the movies. <laughs> the books. What what Kara is very delicately saying is that she's being patient with me talking about all this Tolkien deep dive stuff on the occasion of the new show coming out. I'm a happy participant. I enjoy hearing more about it without having to read it myself. Showing the patience that you might expect from an immortal elf. Regardless, uh, we're we're here to celebrate those occasions and to talk a little bit about something that I was very wrong about. We talked to. Caitlin Fasista, the founder of Tea with Tolkien, about this last year, and she was highly recommended The Silmarillion, and I was very skeptical. T, if you're out there, I'm sorry. I was 100% wrong. In the meantime, I have read The Silmarillion, and I absolutely loved it and cannot recommend it highly enough. Which is not to say that Silmarillion good, new Lord of the Rings show bad. We'll be talking about the Lord of the Rings show once season one is ended. And I, th I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. Wait, can we clarify for a second? My original understanding was that the new show was whole cloth made up within the Lord of the Rings world. But based on kind of what we were talking about before recording, it sounds like it's just a portion of the Silmarillion fleshed out a bit more, maybe? That's partly true. The difficulty with the Silmarillion is that there are multiple versions of it, and the book Silmarillion actually contains some material that takes place after the proper story that is called the Silmarillion. So it's a compilation of a few other things, including the time period that you see in the new show, in the Rings of Power. Some of that material is also included in the appendices of the Lord of the Rings, which Amazon does have the rights to, which is what they're drawing from for the existing stuff. So the show is a hybrid of some original Tolkien material, like the Island of Numenor and the creation of the Rings of Power. And some of it is made up by the writers of the show proper, like certain storylines, which we'll get into a few episodes down the road. So there's a bit of both. And <laughs> there's been way too much strife about the concentration of that mixture. I think. Mm, interesting. Okay. But we're not uh, directly here to talk about that now. I am here to talk at Kara about some of the things that uh, recommend the Silmarillion to what we talk about on this show about the call to love, because it covers a lot. First of all, the book and its various stories cover over 8,000 years of history, unlike the Lord of the Rings, which covers uh, about 20 years in its direct narrative. So it's a different sort of story because it's, you know, it's sort of like the Old Testament in relation to the, to the gospel accounts. Mm. At least I didn't find it boring because it has, I kind of feel like the, uh, the grandpa in the beginning of The Princess Bride trying to 
like explain the storybook to his grandson like it has sword fights and true love and like all this <laughs> you don't you don't have to skip over the kissing parts here it's okay <laughs> i think tolkien tends to be kind of indirect about that but yeah there's definitely some kissing parts because there there are some really good love stories one in particular that really jumps out about oh i don't know midway through the 8000 years or so about uh, two characters named Baron and Luthien which are notable in Tolkien circles because on their headstones at their grave, Tolkien had under his wife's name, he wrote Luthien, and under his own name, he had written Baron, the names of those two characters. Oh. It was a story that had some personal significance to him. Although he didn't, he didn't walk around the house calling her Luthien on <laughs> like a daily basis because um, she was not really, not really into that. <laughs> because they're from two different worlds, which is what provides the impetus for that story. Baron, a mortal man, and Luthien, an immortal elf, fall in love and have to go on this grand adventure, which sort of has some parallels with the ring quest in Lord of the Rings. But it's a great example. You know, Tolkien gets some flack sometimes for either racism or like a race essentialism, where the dwarves are really angsty and bellicose and the elves are very noble and the men are strong. Some people think he means to like say something about real world race characteristics. But at the same time, he, he kind of goes out of his way, not just in Lord of the Rings, but also in the Silmarillion, to talk about the, the friendship and the equality that can be achieved between races. In Lord of the Rings, you see this in the friendship between Legolas the Elf and Gimli the Dwarf. And you see it in the Silmarillion in the, the love story between Baron and Luthien. And eventually they have a child. I don't know if they live happily ever after, but their relationship ends well. Can we just pause for a second on that? Yeah. It's interesting. This is one of the few things that I somehow have done a fair amount of reading on when it comes to <laughs> the world of Lord of the Rings. And one of the things I found interesting, so like, I don't know if this is in the Silmarillion or if it's in some other source text, but apparently the races are more about the relationship that they have with the creator. And that is the kind of like interesting piece about them. So my understanding is that the elves and men were both direct creations by, I can't remember who the like creator character is in the- Eru Iluvatar, he's the one god in Tolkien's world. <laughs> uh, big E, I will yeah, just call e. him- uh, <laughs> Biggie apparently has created those two races. And then the dwarves were created by, it sounds like, one of the elves. Is that correct? No. So there's the one god in this world. And then below him, there's there's these two ranks of, you can think of them as angels, or you could think of them as like pagan deities. And one of those pagan deities slash angels sort of creates the dwarves on his own initiative, but they don't have souls. And so... Eru, the one god, kind of asks the deity, Why, why'd you do this? And the deity's like, you're right, my bad, I'm going to destroy him. And Eru's like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. And then the real god gives the dwarves souls, um, so they're not just like automatons. So he sort of ratifies. Okay, cool. That was the thing that I found interesting, and like, not to diminish any commentary on racial or class romance or mixing or friendship, but in a different lens... It's less even so about like their interrelationship and 
seems almost more about the special relationships that God has with his different created beings. This is an interesting theme that comes through in the Silmarillion and not in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, is that the lesser gods, but also the the one, are more active characters that the human and elf and dwarf characters do relate to, and their yes. faith or lack thereof in providence, for lack of a better word, is a plot point at several junctures. Mm. A really cool example of this is the sort of early on, like kind of the Genesis-ish part of the Silmarillion. The elves are, they haven't awoken yet in Middle-earth. They're asleep somewhere, and the lower, the lesser gods don't know where. And they want to do something to kind of help light the way, so to speak. The sun and moon haven't been created yet. <laughs> so one of the goddesses, angels, looks up the, the sky and sees that the stars are too faint. And she creates a new layer of brighter stars specifically for the elves for when they, whenever they wake up. So when the elves wake up and they see the stars, those have been like personally created for them. And so it has like religious significance to them, mm. which is really, really neat. And it speaks to kind of how they view the powers, the higher powers in the world. Mm. They eventually, one of the stars they nickname like Hope. And they have like a philosophical discussion about different kinds of hope. But also Tolkien has been so adamant that Lord of the Rings in particular, but like the sort of story of Middle Earth is not meant to be a Christian allegory. It's like it's its own thing entirely. Right. He doesn't like allegory. He prefers something that he calls applicability. You can relate elements in the story to this or that aspect of real life if you want to. It's there, but it's not unavoidable the way that, you know, the notorious example that people bring up in contrast to this is Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia being Jesus. Mm. That's not applicability. You don't have the choice to not <laughs> to not see Aslan as Jesus. Mm -hmm. I have thought about this several times watching Lord of the Rings. And I this is not an original idea to me. This was something I read. Sort of like all-encompassing worldness to Lord of the Rings that I think you see in things like Harry Potter and in Star Wars. And there's a reason why all three of those series that I've mentioned have spawned countless sort of prequels, sequels, side stories is because like the worlds themselves exist in the mind of their creator in a much fuller way than just the story that they're telling. Like, yeah. even if you didn't have the Silmarillion written Reading Lord of the Rings, you know that in the in his mind, there is a 10,000 year history of the reason why all of these creatures have the interrelations that they have, you know, why the history of Middle Earth exists. I mean, you get a little taste of it in Lord of the Rings and, you know, in sort of the backstory about the ring, the one ring. But I think you get the sense that like there could be infinite number of other stories that could be told because this world is like so all-encompassing in that in a very particular way. Tolkien wrote about this in an essay called On Fairy Stories. He talked about inner consistency and how it's important when you're doing this sort of, what he called it, a secondary world. You know, our real world that we're talking in is the primary world. But, you know, there's the possibility of creating these little secondary worlds that reflect something about the real world. And that inner consistency is what gives the that kind of little fictional secondary world its like applicability and its resonance with reality so that 
even if it's like an escape, it's not it's not a trivial escape that eschews the world, that hates the world. It helps you live in the world because of that applicability. That inner consistency is something, I think, especially with regard to like mortality, that really comes through in the older stories that take place way before The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Because you don't meet men right away. The idea of dying of natural causes doesn't really enter into the story for the first few thousand years. Mm. People get killed violently, but once you spend enough time with just the elves and the gods, you start to forget about death almost, because the same characters keep hanging around and hanging around and hanging around and interacting and having their ups and downs. And then the men show up and they die within a relative blink of an eye. And you think, oh, wait a minute, that went by fast. Oh, wait, that's my life. (laughs) Um, So it just helps sort of shift your perspective a little bit in a really interesting way. Which I don't know if he meant to give that kind of memento mori angle to things, but it, it certainly feels like it. Well, certainly, I mean, as just somebody watching Lord of the Rings, like the Arwen and Aragorn story is romance has been expanded upon is not really it's in the movies, but it's not actually in the books in that way. Yeah, it's in the it's in the appendices to the Lord of the Rings. I mean, I feel like that's a central certainly in the movies, like that's a central part of the relationship is this question about the incongruity of their mortality. Yeah, it has to be intentional in some way. That's a really cool thing. It doesn't necessarily come across you sort of get the idea that Arwen chooses to become mortal because her love for Aragorn is more important than life or death. But they explain in the Silmarillion why she's able to make that choice, because not all elves can do that. Oh, so why is it? So her father, Elrond, played by Hugo Weaving in the movies, had to make the same choice, because he is, quote-unquote, half-elven. His parents were both mixed, part elf and part human, and the the powers, the deities didn't really know what to do with these people. So they said, okay, you guys got to choose. You can live forever or you can be men, but you can't have it both ways somehow. And so everybody in that family, basically, they're unique in the world, gets to choose. And Elrond had a brother who chose to be a man and became like the first king of this great kingdom, but eventually died way, way, way long before The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Elrond chose to be an elf. So Arwen's like quarter human, uh, I suppose. I forget the math, but uh, you know when she makes that choice, she's all human. She's a human with pointy ears at that point. Mm, okay. And uh, and a rather deep voice for uh, for a female character. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard Liv Tyler uh, talk in real life, but it, it sounds like she's doing falsetto. Like that's her natural voice. Is like falsetto by comparison with her Arwen Lord of the Rings voice. Mm. Interesting. Her armor voice is great, though. It's so, oh, yeah. So, it's so soothing. Okay, so just from a, like, narrative or world-building perspective, what's your take on you know, the commentary that Tolkien is, like, trying to provide by having a set of important characters who get to choose immortality versus humanity? You know, that's a good question. I mean, as I'm saying it, the thing that would occur to me is just we choose whether to pursue eternal life in this, you know, in this life. Like we can either choose to prioritize getting into heaven or not. That doesn't quite strike me as the same thing as what he's saying, because when people here are choosing to be mortal, you're not rejecting God in a way, right? Like, no. I disagree with myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Choosing to be mortal in like Tolkien is very, very far from like taking one's own life. 
because there's a lot of struggle among men, humans, Tolkien calls them men, but they're humans, about what what does it mean? Because the elves don't know what happens to human beings after they die. Something Mm -hmm. happens. They are not bound to, quote, the circles of the world in a way that the elves are. You know, when the elves die, they just go to another continent in the undying lands. They don't die, die, even when they get killed. They're just sort of out. They're they're out of bounds of the story. (laughs) But they're still in that world somewhere. So anyway, I think the significance of the Arwen and Aragorn thing is sort of like a bookend in view of the whole history. Because there's an episode way back at the relatively at the beginning of the, the story of the elves as a whole. One of the primordial couples. They get married. They have a baby. His name is Feanor. He's a very, very important elf. His mother is so consumed with the effort of bearing this exceptional child that she is like never the same after giving birth and loses. She like tires of living and she just sort of lays down and doesn't get back up again. And this is like the first death of a named character in the entire like 8,000 year history. Mm. People don't really know what to do and... She eventually like finds some peace in a sort of kind of afterlife, but her husband doesn't really know what to do. (laughs) And he has his son and people say if he had just been content to raise his son, a lot of sorrows and woes would have been avoided because Feanor eventually gets, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what you call it. He develops some daddy issues because his father remarries, which is not wrong. Like marrying after the death of a spouse is perfectly morally acceptable. But it causes this sort of discontent or inadequacy in Feanor that causes him to do a whole host of things, uh, some good, some horrendously bad. Mm. And that sort of touches off the entire plot of the Silmarillion. So it starts with sort of an inability to grasp death. And in the middle, you know, fast forward several thousand years, when you're in the era that the current Amazon show is covering, the island of Numenor is peopled by this exceptional race of men who, in the books resent mortality, resent what is called the gift of Eru, the one. It's not understood to be a condemnation. It's it's a mysterious gift, mm. but they reject it and they are seeking to become immortal. And they eventually in their hubris overstep and their, their kingdom is destroyed precisely because they're not accepting death. And then at the end, you have Arwen and Aragorn, where you have this noble human who's going to restore the kingdom and you have an elf who is choosing to forsake her uh, her mortality to be with him and to help start this kingdom back up. And at the very end of the appendices story about Arwen and Aragorn, you see Aragorn like embracing his mortality and willingly accepting death. It's not the end. You know, the kingdom continues after that, but it's the end for him. And it's very painful and sorrowful for Arwen because she she never really understood up until that point what the consequences of the choice really were, even though she was told multiple times, you know, it never really sunk in until now. Mm. It's very powerful and it's not all sugar-coated happily ever after. It's I think it's happy, but it's, I guess you could say bittersweet. But I think that's even like taking it too lightly. I don't know. It's it, It's fruitful to think about. It's interesting just knowing that this is kind of an after story when I think about the movies, because I feel like they did a really nice job of capturing, you know, that A, the choice that she had to make. There's that scene where Alrond is basically painting the picture for her of like, you will grow old, like he will grow old before you do, and like he will die and you will watch him die. Yeah. I just remember really being moved 
in the movie about the fact that she like he didn't tell her about the son so she has this dream about them having a son and she's like how could you not tell me about this thing that like obviously i can't give up my children and on the one hand of course it's so painful to lose somebody and you know in the future, even after a long life. But at the same time, it's like, would you forsake all that time you got to be together and, you know, your children and your family and all the things that come out of it? And, you know, for Arwen to give this emphatic yes of like, of course, I want to have lived that life, even if at the end, there's pain and suffering. Yeah. So it's, it's cool that you mentioned that that Elrond episode, some of the language that he uses in that scene in the movies is taken from the description of Aragorn's later life and death in the appendices, like some like mm. word for word. Oh, interesting. As an elegant solution to that. Yeah. There's so much good stuff in there. We, we didn't even talk about the children of Hurin, which is an outright tragedy. It's a huge downer and maybe the best story he's ever written. And that is not related to this new series on Amazon? No. They, there's like a little <laughs> Easter egg. You see this very distinctive helmet that is from that story. It's like a helmet with a little dragon statue on the top of it, emblematic of the main guy, Turin. Mm. He has a really rough life. Yeah, think of it as a mix between Romeo and Juliet and Oedipus, maybe a little bit of Macbeth. It's just a really tough ride, but it's a (laughs) phenomenal meditation on fate and free will. But they don't say fate, they say doom. Mm. We shouldn't leave it on that downer note, though. (laughs) <laughs> I what, once again I just want to reiterate the Silmarillion's grace. I feel great for having read it. If you liked Lord of the Rings and have a little bit of patience to dive into a much longer story in terms of the amount of time it spans, would wholeheartedly recommend the Silmarillion. And I think the the Amazon show so far is not a bad spin-off of it either. Uh, but we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. So Kara, once again, happy Hobbit Day. Thank you for joining us. As always, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. As always, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, share this podcast with your friends, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.